welcome to episode 219 of Late Night Linux, recorded on the 27th of February 2023. I'm Joe, and with me are Phelan. Howdy. Graham. Hello, everyone. And Will. All right. Let's get straight on with our discoveries then. And Will, I mean, you are just taking the piss at this point. (laughs) (laughs) MQTT Shark, you've definitely done this one before, haven't you? I have not, because it did not exist before. Roger Light, who is a Mosquito MQTT server Grand Fromage and friend of the show, has taken a fine previous find of mine called T-Shark and adapted it specifically for MQTT. So if you're trying to debug your MQTT sessions and you want to understand what's going on, you should check out MQTT Shark. It will show you like the full connection in real time when it actually tries to connect and the SSL packets can be decoded if you've got the pre-shared keys in there. It will show you the messages going backwards and forwards, the subscriptions, the unsubscriptions, the full low-level MQTT conversation broken down, printed out in a lovely, easy-to-read, easy-to-pass format, all in one single command. If you do a lot of stuff with MQTT and you're trying to work out what's going on, this is the thing for you. So in the usage example, there's will-topic and will-payload. That's you then. <laughs> it is not me, no. In MQTT, you have a will-topic and a will-payload, and when you die, then you publish your will. And so that's like the the thing that the server does for you to say, this thing, this device has gone away, and this is what it had to say, you bastards. That sounds very convincing, but I don't believe him. <laughs> yeah, I think it's definitely named after you. <laughs> so what have you actually used this for? Very little, personally, (laughs) because all of my MQTT connections work perfectly because Roger's done such a good job on Mosquito. All right. What can you imagine it being used for then? If I had to write some software that ran on a microcontroller and didn't use a previously available library, like I was trying to write something for RISC-V, for example, (coughs) then maybe I would have to try and understand exactly what was going on backwards and forwards with my personal code and the MQTT server. And what I would use definitely would be MQTT shock. Is that the faint whiff of a point for me? Mm, Not yet. Not yet. Is it coming though? (laughs) Is it in the post? It's in the basket on the side. Yeah, it's in the basket. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Okay. Fair enough. I don't know if I should admit that um, I was ordering something from uh, AliExpress the other day and saw them on the side, and I ordered a couple of RISC-V development boards as well. Yay! Ah, are they still somewhere between China and here? No, actually, they arrive really quickly. Um, you, you never know whether you're going to get scammed. It's one <laughs> <laughs> <What> of <are> that. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's part of the delight of AliExpress. Yeah. Well, there's a slightly <laughs> funny story. I got the, I think it's Lychee RV, these boards. You can't tell which one you're ordering. And uh, there was um, a Wi-Fi board for like $7. And then there was the board itself, um, which was like $22. So I thought I'll order the board and I'll order the Wi-Fi. I saw that some people had got the Wi-Fi working with Linux. And then when they arrived, I have actually got two boards, one with Wi-Fi. (laughs) So the whole thing with Wi-Fi was $7. And then just the thing on its own without Wi-Fi was $22. No. <laughs> oh, but presumably the $22 one was like a couple of acres extra. <laughs> well, I look forward to you putting them into production and me getting a point. Mm. 
Phelan, you've got loads of discoveries. I have loads of very meager discoveries, yes. All right, okay. Steam Family Library. This is something that I didn't know Steam could do. So we got a new computer in the house, which was a repurposed being chucked in a skip computer, which is only like 2% slower than my processor, which disgusts me no end, but (laughs) it doesn't have a graphics card yet, so it's not quite as good as mine, uh, even though the Intel graphics card on it is actually still doing a mighty good job. You can share your library if you log into the other computer with your Steam ID, and then you can tell it to forget it and log out, but it then knows that that machine is something that you've logged into, and you can add that machine and the user on that machine to a family account and that means that you can share your library to that across the network i think even across the internet and they can have access to games that you've bought and there's a priority system in it where if i'm playing one of those or if they're playing one of those games and i want to play that game i can essentially boot them out of it because i'm the owner of the game so they uh, don't have priority above me but i thought it was a really cool system because i wish i'd actually set up for my wee fella a account previously and then bought all the games that he really likes and i play with him fair enough but i wish we'd set them up on his own account but it's a bit too late for that now so there's probably a re bit a bit of repurchasing is going to have to happen but until then he can use that share library feature which is pretty cool you realize he's going to be kicking your ass at games before you even know it. What do you mean, will be? <laughs> <laughs> Are your kids beating you, Will, yet? Uh, at Fortnite, my eldest is thrashing me mercilessly. But we do use the family sharing. My eldest is, I don't know, seven years, eight years older than my youngest, and so has got a massive back library of games that he once played a lot of and now doesn't play anymore. Uh, and so we haven't had to rebuy them. He'd just be able to play them out of the library. It's been brilliant. It'd be nice if you could actually physically give them and the save games over to somebody else Mm. and say, no, this is actually, they were playing it on my PC, now they can have it on their own. That'd be great if they did that. Mm. Gabe, if you're listening, go on, make it so. All right, device ideas to get steering wheel. What's all this about? So CX is a terrible, terrible place, and it just lured me in with a 50 euro steering wheel and was pestered by the wee fella to get... And it works for things like Super Tux Cart and things like that that are native, but Steam doesn't recognize it as a steering wheel. And now, I don't know if this is actually true, but apparently the SDL library that gets pulled in by Steam and built identifies the USB ID. So I submitted a very quick one-liner patch. I must add that the new GitHub dev interface is absolutely awful, and I want the old simple line one back. Thanks very much. If I wanted to use Vi in a browser, I'd just amputate both <laughs> arms. But uh, the thing was easy to do. I got the IDs and I submitted it. And then I got a tweet saying, oh, thanks, that's been submitted by the SDL team. So that's really cool. And Yay. I hope that it actually gets pulled into Steam. Otherwise, somebody will have tricked me into doing FOSS development for free. Which <laughs> I- <laughs> so fingers crossed. But every day he comes into me and says, is the steering wheel working at Steam? I'm like, no, it's not working at Steam. It doesn't work quite that quick. Yeah, well, he's got super tux car, as he said, so I'm sure it'll be uh, fine. <laughs> it's exactly the same. <laughs> Have you played NetHack with him yet? Oh, no, I'm not going to subject him to that. It's just cruelty. You should introduce him to Jet Set Willy and Boulder Dash and stuff. See what he makes of proper old school games. Oh, God. 
All right. And uh, you've been pretending to learn a programming language called NIM. Yeah. So, uh, you know, buoyed by my success of not looking at my Rust book, I decided to look at a book online, which is a NIM book. And NIM looks really interesting. And the thing is, it looks similar to Python, as in a nice, clean syntax and not shitey C-based stuff. But it compiles down to C or JavaScript. And I think there's even a C++ one it can compile down to as well. And I just thought it was pretty amazing where you get a nice, clean, syntactically beautiful to look at language, but you can actually produce a really fast executable at the end of it as well. So I'm actually starting to look at this. It's quite cool. Uh, I don't know how far I'll get with it, but so far I've actually read more of the online book than I have of the paper book sitting on my desk. And you've got one more mystery one phone in. I do. So I was listening to The Hacks, which is by the guys who run SaltStack. And there's one of the guys who runs their sort of community thing is a guy called Jimmy Chunga. He used to be an actor and now works for SaltStack and does their PR and training stuff and things like that. And they were talking about being Trekkies, whatever. And they said, Scott Bakula. And I always thought the fella from Quantum Leap was Scott Bakula. But then I thought, oh my God, is that because Bakula, the software that does backups, is a quantum leap back through your data? What? I know. <laughs> yeah, I always thought it was Bakula, but there you go. It's Scott Bakula, he said, and he's in Hollywood, so he clearly knows more than I do anyway. And then I thought, Bakula with a C is the backup software. Bakula with a K is the Sam quantum leaping with Ziggy the computer, etc. And I thought, is that why they named the backup software that? I don't know. I mean, I can't answer this question. Mind blown. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I was picking up a dog shit at exactly that moment. I was like, what? <laughs> okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash late night Linux, support the show, and get $100 free credit. From their award-winning support, offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. And check out their managed MySQL, Postgres, and MongoDB databases that allow you to quickly deploy a new database and defer management tasks like configuration, managing high availability, disaster recovery, backups, and data replication. Simple and fast to deploy with secure access, their flexible plans include daily backups. So go to linode.com slash late night Linux, create a free account, and you'll get $100 in credit and support the show. That's linode.com slash late night Linux. Graham, you've got a couple of gaming-related things. First of all, Turrican 2 AGA on the Amiga. Yes, so Turrican 2 was an Amiga game released in 1991. And one of the best Amiga games, it's like a sideways scrolling adventure shoot 'em up game, a bit like Super Metroid on the snares, but a bit more frantic. And it was a, a great game. The AGA part in this release is that later Amigas, like the 1200 and the 4000, had a bigger colour palette and could have more colours on the screen, but they couldn't take, use those colours on the old games. They were just baked into their 32 colours or whatever they happened to use. This uh, person called Sonic Sloth has actually <laughs> reverse-engineered the original PC version of Turrican 2 because that used 256 colours, which is what an AGA Amiga can display, and developed it into Turrican 2 AGA, a new version of Turrican 2 for the Amiga. 
And this, more than nostalgia or retro gaming, getting it on my Amiga is a whole different story. I had to use a device called a Plip Box, which is a parallel port <laughs> Arduino thing I built and 3D printed the case for, pretending to be an Ethernet device. <laughs> So I actually copied this 8 meg um, game. Did Ethernet even exist back then, Graham, realistically? <laughs> there are kind of drivers with TC... You, there's Amy TCP, which is... Oh, God, there's a whole new world of proprietary software on the Amiga still. Even getting a modern browser on the Amiga or SSL certificates is difficult. I've done all that. I mean, the best browsers are proprietary. You forget there's a world out there like that. And there still is on the Amiga. It took, I don't know, about 40 minutes to copy this game over the parallel port to the Amiga. <laughs> Eight megabytes in 40 yeah, minutes. Another, another, I don't know, 20 minutes to decompress the files. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> but it's definitely worth it. it, it uh-huh. Honestly, it is definitely worth it. I'm, I'm sure the PC version is rubbish, and it's much better to actually play it on an Amiga. Appreciate the beige plastic. I can't believe that games like that are still being made, but it is a great game, and there is something nice about playing on the authentic hardware with this authentic crappy joystick with one button. <laughs> is it the smell of burning dust? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And Zelda, a link to the past on Linux. Yeah, so this is similar in a way, from a very similar period. This is a project called Zelda 3. A Link to the Past was my favourite Zelda game. It could be because I came across it one Christmas when I was stuck in the US, actually had nowhere to stay. So I stayed with a friend's distant relatives in Canada in the snow and they had a SNES machine and I was kind of locked away in the basement with snow piled up outside the windows and they and played Zelda A Link to the Past. It was just great gaming experience and I didn't do very much else for three weeks. Anyway, this project, Zelda 3, is a commented source code, reverse-engineered version of Zelda. Oh, wow. So it's a great game. It's, it's a game that's historically important. So the fact that this kind of its techniques are documented in the same way kind of Elite has been, I yeah. think, is good in its own right. It doesn't have any of the original Nintendo IP, which is right as well. If you want to play it, you have to own the cartridge, you have to rip the cartridge, you have to then use a Python command that's included in the project to turn that into a load of table data, which is then imported into the reverse engineered code. And they've even added a few features, like a couple of slots for items, widescreen, a few other nice convenient pieces. I build, This is another thing that blows me around mind about the 21st century. The whole thing takes to build, I don't know, less than two seconds. It's just amazing. And the game plays really well, I have to say. There's a whole world of retro gaming that tries to emulate the feel of this particular game. But playing the original, it still stands up well, and it's worth actually playing it again one cold winter if you're stuck in some snow somewhere. All right, well, I feel like the things that I've discovered, I should have known anyway. But uh, it's always a learning experience, isn't it, Linux? So what I learned was that if you reinstall Ubuntu and go to the advanced partitioning or whatever, choose the partition where it was installed already, but don't tick the format partition box. It will selectively delete the system stuff, but it'll keep all of your home directory and everything. And then when you boot into it, yeah, you haven't necessarily got the same applications that you had installed, but they're an app to get away or whatever. But all of your config files are there, and you can just get up and running immediately. But how I discovered this was not having a recent enough kernel for something that I wanted to test out. And so I thought, well, all right, I'll just go for 22.10 instead of 22.04. And then the next day, 
the point release of 2204.2 came out with the new updated kernel. I was like, fuck's sake. Well, let me just try going back then. And sure enough, it worked absolutely perfectly. And I've got the newer kernel and I'm on the LTS. Didn't lose any of my config files. I mean, I had it all backed up anyway, so that's why I took the risk on it. But yeah, I mean, I presume you must be able to do that with other distros as well. But with Ubuntu specifically, it worked absolutely perfectly. I genuinely don't think I've ever done that. I had never, I'd never needed to do it, but I just thought, I wonder if I don't just wipe it and copy all my stuff back on. What if I just try and take the shortcut? What's going to happen? What's the worst that can happen? And it turns out the worst that can happen is fucking brilliant, seamless situation that didn't require any effort at all. I didn't realize that didn't happen. For a long time, I had home as a separate partition, and so I wouldn't click that. And that's really where a lot of my current problems still stem from when something isn't working <laughs> is that I'm using a config file from 2007. Yeah. But it's interesting that it's purposefully blanks everything else. I just thought it overwrote something and you'd be stuck if there's still an old library knocking around. Well, no, my understanding is it's clever mm. about which directories to overwrite and which ones not to. I don't know if it took a little bit longer than normal or not. I can't really remember. I would have thought it must do. It must have to work it out rather than just, right, we've got a totally blank canvas, just stick everything on there. But it wasn't noticeably much longer, I don't think. So a huge thumbs up, I think, to... Uh, I don't necessarily think it's the Zubuntu team. I think it's probably more likely upstream Ubuntu, where this is coming from. But either way, well done, everyone. It works brilliantly. Is it just me, or does it, is it like you feel like you need to scratch the inside of your eyeballs thinking about all the old shit that might be left lying about on there? <laughs> I was a bit worried, but then I just thought, life's too short to worry about that. If it all goes wrong, I've got backups, I can just totally wipe it all again and yeah. start again. I mean, I am sitting here recording on this very machine, so if this episode <laughs> never comes out, then I suppose we'll know why. Oh, don't worry, I'll release my bit of it. <laughs> just to prove it. <laughs> well, I did check and I had 37 hours left on the hardware recorder, so if I need that backup, we should be fine. But I would imagine other distros like Fedora must offer this, but I've just never really tried it before. It just isn't a thing that has come up for me. Mm. But I was just feeling really lazy. I couldn't be asked to plug in the SSD where the backups were, essentially. So do let us know if you can do it on other distros as well. On to a bit of admin then. First of all, thank you everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. If you want to join those people, you can go to latenightlinux.com support. And remember, for $10 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed that includes this show, Linux Downtime, and Linux After Dark. And you occasionally get episodes early. And if you want to get in contact with us, you can email show at latenightlinux.com. And if you want to chat with other listeners on Telegram, Matrix, IRC, or Discord, you can go to latenightlinux.com slash community for details there. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Collide, and Collide has some big news. If you're an Okta user, they can get your entire fleet to 100% compliance. If a device isn't compliant, the user can't log into your cloud apps until they fix the problem. It's that simple. Collide patches one of the major holes in zero-trust architecture, device compliance. Without Collide, IT struggles to solve basic problems like keeping everyone's OS and browser up to date. Unsecure devices might be logging into your company's apps because there's nothing to stop them. Collide is a simple device trust solution that enforces compliance as part of authentication and it's built to work seamlessly with Okta. The moment Collide's agent detects a problem, it alerts the user and gives them instructions to fix it. 
If they don't fix the problem within a set time, they're blocked. Collide's method means fewer support tickets, less frustration, and most importantly, 100% fleet compliance. So visit collide.com slash late night Linux to learn more or book a demo. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash late night Linux. Let's do some feedback then. And loads of people got in touch about backups. Time shift is the Linux Mint one that I mentioned. Mm. I don't know how many emails we got about this, tweets, Mastodon posts, all the community places. Time shift, of course. Yes, that is the Linux Mint one. So thank you everyone for that. Gene recommended Copier with a K, Copier, Copier, that has uh, GUI and CLI options. John recommended GRSync, which is a GUI for RSync, which is in most repos. I'd never heard of this one, but I feel like I should have. Mm, have to have a look because it's always nice to get some kind of visual feedback, especially if you're just starting out with RSync. What's funny is that the Wikipedia article has got a screenshot for GRSync, mm. which is from like proper old school GNOME 2 Ubuntu. I was going to say, I, I'm sure I remember GRSync, and that is the vision in my mind. That that screenshot on Wikipedia is exactly how I remember it. So it must be a long time ago. Seeing an old screenshot, there's nothing like that for reassuring you that your backups are <laughs> sure to be fine. <laughs> well, no, come on. This is software that is clearly finished. I mean, what has changed with RSync over the last 20 years? Fucking nothing, pretty much. And a GUI on top of it. I mean, all it's doing is running commands. Hopefully. <laughs> I seem to remember that GRSync is just a front end to the back end commands, and you can get it to show you what commands it is that it's built by you toggling the options on and off. I'm pretty sure you can get it to give you the command line. So even if you just use it as a, a way to generate the right options, it's still useful. Yeah, it's got a simulation button from this ancient screenshot as well. So uh, yeah, it seems like a good shout. And uh, Don recommended Chronopete, I think, or Chronopete, I don't know, uh, and says, it works great, and it's got a GUI. I've never used it over a network connection, so I can't speak to that. It's very similar to Apple's Time Machine. And Jeremy recommended UR Backup or Euro Backup. <laughs> Euro Backup, my. <laughs> Euro Backup. He said, you run your own server with a web interface that pulls backups from multiple machines. It really is fantastic and works on Linux and Windows. It supports backing up to a local server and remote server. So thank you, everyone. We'll have to stick links to all of them in the show notes. So check them all out. Oh, and just while we think of it, Zach wrote to me on Mastodon to say, to remind me when do I said print out your Borg key, but don't forget to put your Borg password on it. And I actually do have that on my sheet of paper, which I retrieved from a safe to check but yeah it was a long time since i've done it but yeah do both of them onto the sheet of paper otherwise you're really hosed so there you go so uh we got a message from mike who says regarding mycroft there's some good news about the same time michael lewis was announcing the bad news mark ii and dev kit owners received an email offering a free usb drive for neon os neon has officially partnered with mycroft Neon OS is based on the Mycroft core code and the USB is a drop-in replacement for the one that came with the Mark II. People who bought the device can get the key for free or it can be ordered for $20. Yeah, and it runs KDE, the latest version as well. No, hang on, name crash. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a shame about the name, but otherwise that sounds pretty good that the uh, people who backed it are not going to be just totally fucked. And that's the power of open source, I suppose. James got in touch with a call to action. He says, Volunteers at Nextcloud assist with submitting and verifying translations, mostly managed by a small group. 
Because the project is growing at such a massive rate and finding native speakers of a certain language can be difficult, perhaps you could help raise awareness of this ongoing effort and let your audience know about this opportunity to contribute back to an open source project. Thank you. Anyone interested is welcome to join via Transifex, and the link will be in the show notes. You asked and we delivered, James. AJ asked, do any of you use your guitar with Linux? I've only ever played a guitar with Rocksmith in 2014, and it came with a special USB cable that works with the game via Steam. From my searching, it looks like I need an audio interface to connect it. Are there any you recommend? Now, Phelim, you talked about this when we did the Fosswalk Live show. Yeah, I did. I mean, I don't want to sound like I'm some sort of uh, authority on this because I kind of used it and then... I just kind of strum my guitar on its own most of the time. But I bought myself an interface for the Pi 3 that was running GuitarX. But I got for myself a Behringer Euphoria UMC22 audio interface. And I'll try and find out how much it cost, but it wasn't very expensive. I think it was around 50-ish quid, I'm not sure. But it, it is really good. Plugs in by USB and then, yeah, I mean, that was a Pi running that, so that worked fine. And I've got it plugged into my main PC as well. It's really good. But to be honest, it sits there most of the time because I'm a bit too lazy to get the cable. But GuitarX is the software you want to run on the uh, PC or whatever it is, whether it's for Pi or, or you can just install that on a normal distro. Yeah, and it is surprisingly good. I mean, some of the effects out of it are really good. I mean, yeah, it takes a bit of learning to figure out how you have to do it. But I mean, it was doing chorus and echo and distortion and stuff like that. Some of them are really, really good. Well, I wouldn't know about this because I just plug into my valve amps at home that I have to have on like <laughs> 0.1 because they're so fucking loud and I don't want to piss my neighbors off. But uh, yeah, as for interfaces, I think that most of them work on Linux because they just use the, the basic USB drivers. So um, yeah, just look on Amazon or wherever you're going to buy. And Behringer, I mean, they are pretty cheap and not necessarily going to last very long if you don't treat them well. But just look them up on Amazon or wherever and then just search for the model of that and Linux or Ubuntu or whatever and see if people have had success with them. And uh, you're generally going to be fine. All you need is a quarter inch in and USB and you should be grand. Is it worth mentioning to look out for a DI input on an audio interface? I don't think necessarily. If you're only playing at home for fun, I don't think you need to necessarily worry about that. You know, you might have a bit of... Um, hiss and stuff but you know if it's just a hobby thing then you should be fine but uh has got a link to the umc22 i think there's like a, a um 20 I, I can't remember now there's there's various cheap behringer interfaces anyway and my understanding is that most of them work but your mileage may vary i was all full of ideas that i get a whatever the correct microphone that you would tell us to and not use my snowball mic but my snowball lives on yeah well the snowball bills itself as a condenser but i am convinced that it is basically a dynamic mic ultimately i'm convinced mine's better than all the other ones out there there's some sort mm. of weird batch i got <laughs> maybe i mean yours sounds all right but you know okay this episode is sponsored by entroware go to entroware.com entroware sells computers with ubuntu and ubuntu mate pre-installed They've got a range of desktops, laptops, and servers, and most parts are configurable, so you can pick the CPU, RAM, and storage that's right for you. 
If you can't find exactly what you want, then do contact them and they'll work with you on a bespoke solution that's perfect for your needs. They ship to the UK, Republic of Ireland, France, Germany, Italy and Spain. And if you do buy one of their machines, there's a little drop down at checkout and you can select late night Linux so they'll know that we sent you. So go to entroware.com for all your Linux computing needs. Chris wrote in to say that they have a nephew who is eight years old. He has recently started using a Raspberry Pi and doing a little bit of web browsing. My sister has been sitting with him and they have been learning together, but she tells me that while she popped out of the room, he must have clicked on something that frightened him. Are there tools for Linux that you're aware of that can allow youngsters to use the internet but prevent them from accessing adult content? When I say adult content, I don't just mean pornography, but also bad language and things that are scary, gory and violent, etc. If I'm not mistaken, on Windows, they have something called NetNanny. Is there anything equivalent to that on Linux? My sister is just an ordinary computer user and not a computer enthusiast. So it has to be simple and it has to be user friendly with a GUI interface. My sister knows nothing about the command line or editing text files or anything like that. So an overly technical solution is no good. Well, there are some DNS options for this, but I'm not sure they're going to filter bad language. I think that is uh, a bit of a stretch. There might be some um, browser extensions maybe for that, but there's, there's certainly DNS solutions that will block adult content, mucky JPEGs and the like. Yeah, and pie holes getting there in terms of letting you choose which devices you want to be restricted to which block list or which allow list. I and mean, I found that useful for some computers. Yeah, and I think if you can provide a Raspberry Pi onto her network, if you can go and help her get it set up, then I think the UI, the web UI with, with Piehole is very usable by normal people. And if you're in the EU or not, I don't know. Uh, I know Cloudflare, you had one, Will, before that was Cloudflare that had a kid's kind of version of that. And I know there's one called Zero DNS now. I haven't used it yet, or DNS Zero, sorry. I haven't used it, but they have a feature where there's like a childproof version where they try and limit like stuff like gambling sites and things like that. The ironic thing is, I think Google used to have a kids YouTube thing, but they, they sort of hamstrung it by the fact that you couldn't subscribe to channels anymore because that was seen as, you know, promoting content and stuff, which I thought was a really stupid way to do it. Because if you actually knew there was content producers that you could actually trust, you could add them as channels for the kid, but they did away with that. It was a ridiculous way of doing things, I thought, but there we go. Is the elephant in the room here that the internet is just like the world in general and you can't wrap kids in cotton wool, you can't protect them from the bad shit that is out there and you just have to prepare them for it. You either have to supervise or prepare them that, you know, I, I know that eight years old is very young, but eventually they're going to see some fucked up shit on the internet, mm. whether you like it or not. You're never too young to see a hand grenade get dropped by a drone into a Russian trench. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or a balloon get shot down or whatever. You know, th there's always going to be fucked up shit on the internet. And I don't think that there is necessarily a technological solution or a series of technological solutions to this problem. I think the problem is much more of a sort of social people problem. And if your kids are going to go online unsupervised, that's very much like letting them just go out into the world unsupervised, isn't it? I agree to an extent, but 
there's a product called Disney Circle that does exactly this, yeah. you know, and it's even built into like Netgear routers. But of course, all your data is then getting sent to Disney or whoever runs the service. And it would be wonderful, I think, if there was like an open source equivalent to, to something like Disney Circle where you can ease kids into the internet or at least have some oversight over what they've been looking all the time that they're doing it. It would really help. But I do kind of agree with you, but it'd be nice if it wasn't like on or off. I think that using the internet is a life skill these days in the same way that tying your shoelaces was when we were kids, that you need to get exposure to it and you just need to, to learn how to deal with the problems as they come up. And you need to be taught that and you need to be taught that in a, in a way in which you can understand what's going on. And so I agree with you, Joe, that it is the way that it is. But in the same way that I wouldn't take my kids to a truck stop bathroom for an afternoon out, I probably wouldn't let them just have at the internet unsupervised. But I'm lazy, so I do let them do that. And so they need to learn how to deal with the sorts of stuff that they see. But also having pie hole there in the back to know that they're not actually going to go to muckyjpegs.com is is quite reassuring. So mm. my vote goes for having a, a separate system run it on a Raspberry Pi, it needn't cost a lot of money, it would be pretty reliable, and it can take out some of the harmful content, but not all of it. Yeah, I've done exactly that for some of the suicide chat forums, um, just because I can't even I can't even think about them getting to that stuff. Mm. Yeah, but you know, if they really want to find it, they will. Mm. And they may stumble across it, even if they don't want to. And what whatever it is, the 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 dark shit that you don't want them to see, and uh, you know th this is from my ivory childless tower, of course. <laughs> that I'm saying all of this, but yeah, I think you're right. Some technological solutions, but also communication and asking this child what upset them, and you know having the, a relationship where they will tell you honestly. Look, I saw this thing and it upset me, and then you can explain to them what it is. I don't know. Like I said, I haven't got any kids. I haven't got a fucking clue what I'm talking about. But uh, that's what I'd do if I did have kids. And it's probably for the best that I don't have them. <laughs> right, well, we'd better get out of here then. We'll be back next week when we'll probably be covering what's been going on in the news. But you never know. Until then, I've been Joe. I've been Phelan. I've been Graham. And I've been Will. See you later. <laughs>